That's how I feel as well. Uh, no, in, in all seriousness, uh, it's it's an exciting time. The Lord is is leading our family to North Carolina. I'm going to be the dean of a seminary down there, and I'm excited about that. But one of the hard things. things of, of leading is is the opportunity the Lord's given to me here. Uh, I will I will not forget these many months the Lord's given me the opportunity to preach the word here. I have loved this. And uh, you know it, it's a blessed thing to be a preacher and to find a people ready to listen. And that's what I found this church to be. So I've just been so thankful. And I'm excited that the Lord has given to me this space of time. Uh, we've, we've kind of uh, judged it out how long I'll need in order to finish First Peter and in God's good providence uh, we, Lord willing, will be able to make it through the rest of the text and I'm excited about being able to do that. Well this this afternoon we're going to be looking at First Peter chapter 3 and we're concluding a section of the letter because Peter has been talking about uh, the responsibilities that each of us have before a lost world to live in front of them in such a way that they see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so Peter starts with this word in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, finally. Now, Peter's a good preacher here. Because you recall that any time a preacher says, finally, he's nowhere near done with the sermon. Correct? <laughs> and in the same way, Peter here says, finally. But he's not actually concluding the book. He's concluding a section of the book, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I, I've titled this Instruction for All, and the reason that I've, I've done that, and there's an alternative title, I'll talk about that in just a second, because you'll notice what he did early on. He, he talked in 3.11 to 12, he made this transition where he said, live among the Gentiles honorably so that they see your good deeds. And then he worked through various relationships we ought to have. How should the Christian relate to the state. That's what he talked about first. Then how should the slave relate to its, his master? How should the husband and wife relate to one another? And now what he's done is instead of dealing with specific categories of people, he's taking a step back and saying, Christians, brothers and sisters, how ought we to relate to the people around us. And he's going to categorize this into, into really three groups, in my estimation. He's going to say, how do you deal with people who are among the church, the assembly itself? Second, how do you deal with people who are outside the assembly? And then third, what should your relationship with God look like? So those are the final three admonitions we're going to be looking at. But I've also labeled this sermon, Living the Good Life. And the reason I've titled it that is because you'll notice at the end of chapter 3 here, in this section we're looking at 3, 8 to 12, he talks about really what the good life is. You'll see it in verse 10. He says, for whoever desires to love life and to see good days, here's what he ought to do. You know, the question of what the good life is, is a really significant question to our world, isn't it? Oh, let me just ask you, do you want to live the good life? Who doesn't want to live the good life? Well, here up on the screen, I don't have a video. I know it looks like a video, and I got your hopes up, but I'm going to dash them now and say we're not going to be watching a video. Uh, but this is a picture of a video that you could find online, and it is, uh, it's, it's by a Harvard professor 
who uh, he's the third director of a study that's gone on for 75 years. And this study uh, took a number of men. Uh, in fact, uh, it's more than 100. I forget exactly how many. Uh, and, and they surveyed them when they were kids. And they followed through with these kids. They're in their 90s now. And they followed through asking them what has, what has been satisfactory in them. They, they've, they've done medical tests. They've determined, you know, marriage, no marriage, kids, no kids, all the sorts of things that we begin to ask, what exactly does the good life look like? Well, this guy here, the, the professor who's making this uh, TED Talk, he's addressing this question, what exactly is the good life? And he's the third professor that's leading the study because, of course, you know, somebody leads it for 25 years and then they're done. Somebody else leads it for 40 years and then they're done. And now he's finally, he's bringing this thing to a close because most likely these, these people won't live much longer than this. And he's addressing the question, so in light of this study of these men that we've studied for 75 years, we're asking the question, what is the good life? Well, is that an important question to people? If you look at the video online, something like 52 million people have watched this video. So clearly people care about what the good life is. They want the secret to the good life, don't they? Well, one of the interesting things he does is he begins his lecture, his, his TED Talk, as he says, there's a study that was done, a survey for millennials. And the question was, what are your highest hopes and aspirations? What are your goals? 80% of them said that their goal was to be rich. 50% said that their goal was to be famous. The reason I mention these is because this tends to be how our world thinks in categories of what the good life would look like. If my bank account was overflowing, if I walked down the street and everybody recognized me, that would be what the good life looks like. Now, I'm not going to spoil it yet. I'm going to make you wait until the final end of this sermon to determine what the good life looks like. And partly because I want to walk through the passage. Because I think God tells us what the good life looks like. So we're going to work through what the good life looks like in relationships. Because that's ultimately going to be what it's about. So notice with me here in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever love, desires to love life and to see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that this afternoon we have the opportunity to look into your word. We want to live according to what your word says because you've made us, you've made our world, and you've told us how to live. And we want to live in the way that you've asked us to. 
Partly because we know that you know us better than we know ourselves. And so help us today to understand what your word says so that we might apply it and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, I think that the passage divides into three parts. What is our relationships to look like among other saints, among believers? Because you notice what he's done up to this point. He's given instructions for slaves. He's given instructions for husbands and wives. And now what he's doing is he's giving instructions for church members. And at some of those various points, you say, well, I, you know, this doesn't directly pertain to me, but here you are in a church. And so Peter's going to say something directly to us. And then he's going to say something directly to us in regard to those who are outside of our assembly, outside of the church. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at what it means to live rightly within the assembly. And you'll notice that he gives a list of five things. He says, have unity of mind, sympathy, familial love, so love the family of God. Have a brotherly, or have a tender heart, and have a humble mind. Do you notice any pattern when we talk about these five things? Maybe you see something in here that suggests right relationships. Unity of mind, thinking the same way as everyone else. It's an interesting thing in our world today, isn't it? Uh, what is valued? Uh, not having unity of mind, being completely distinctive. And yet scripture continuously calls us as believers to be unified in mind, to think the same way, to draw close to one another, because there is in fact one right way to think. Now that's not to say about any one particular matter, but broadly put, there's a way to view life. And we ought to have a unity around that. Sympathy, a regard for others. Familial love or brotherly and sisterly love, a love that pertains to the family of God. Tender hearts and humble minds. You know, Peter's not the only one to suggest the centrality of such characteristics in the life of believers. One of the things I like to do when I'm preaching is every once in a while turn our attention to some of the major passages of Scripture. The ones that, that we know well because they concentrate on deep biblical truth. So what I want to do is I want to reinforce Peter's five commands by looking at a passage in Philippians chapter 2. You probably already know it, but turn your Bibles there to Philippians chapter 2. Now the I'm going to be reading from the NIV edition here because I think it, it translates one section really well, and I, and I want to communicate that. But one of the things Paul is doing in the Philippian congregation is he's trying to get them unified. Notice again, Peter says, have unity of mind. And here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore... If any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that is, if there's anything good in being united to Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and by the way, these are all rhetorical statements. 
Paul's not saying, you know, is there any encouragement from being in Christ? Is there any sympathy in, in these sorts of things that are developed by being in Christ? Is there any tenderness and compassion? His point is that this, these are natural byproducts of coming to know God. Because hey, frankly, what does it mean to know God? It means to be conformed to his image. And this is who he is. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's, he, he knows our frame and sympathizes with us. So he says, if there's any of these things, then here's what you ought to do. Verse 2, then make my joy complete by, here's how you're going to do it, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't do anything that derives simply from your own benefit. Instead, rather, in humility, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, let me just pause there. We're going to read a little bit more here in just a moment. But this sounds rather ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, just think about this statement. Paul is saying here, listen, here's how the church ought to run. Here's what we ought to do. We ought to have a humility concerning ourselves so that we don't act in our own interest. We act in the interest of other people. And broadly put, the world says that that would be rather foolish. Because what's going to happen if you do that? Oh, man, you're going to get run over. People are just going to step right, right on top of you. And, of course, sometimes this happens, doesn't it? And yet... If we are in relationships in which the church is operating as the church ought, when I give to my brothers and sisters all of my strength and they give theirs to me, do you know the unity you find is much stronger than if I had merely by myself sought my own interests? And this is the interesting thing that I've always found about God's word. There are so often where we find commandments that we, on the face of it, think, if I do that, it's going to be hard. And yet, when we do it, we find it easy. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for it's easy. And, and, and we think, in some ways, well, well, Jesus, you just told us how difficult this is going to be, and yet he provides for us his strength, and he provides for us brothers and sisters who love us, and to, to, to help us in our weakness. So how in the world can we do such a thing? Because this is totally unnatural to humanity, wouldn't you say? We don't, humans don't normally do this. So how is the church going to do it? And why would it do it? Well, notice verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus. Act like Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? Verse 6. Who being in the very nature God, that is, he was God from all eternity, did not consider equality with God or with his Father something to be used to his own advantage. Here's what he said. 
He found him, he, you know, as, as he lived in eternity, he did not say, I'm going to use this right, this opportunity that I have. I'm not going to use it to my own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We've got to be careful here. It's not that Jesus ceased to be God, but what he did was he cloaked himself in humanity, in human form. He he shielded the glory that he naturally had. And he took on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a mere man. He then humbled himself further. I, I mean, just think about it. In terms of, of us, I mean, we, we sort of think if... If we were to take on the form of, of an animal, how humbling that would be. And yet, think of the dif- distinct distance that exists between God and man. Far higher than the difference between man and animal. And yet, he humbled himself in this way to become a man, but he didn't just go there. He then went further by becoming obedient to death. An innocent death. But not only a death, the worst death possibly imagined in that day, death on a cross. And so God highly exalted him to the highest place, gave him above a name that is above every name. That every knee would bow to him and every tongue confess and the father would receive all the glory. But, you know, Peter or Paul's point in Philippians chapter two is this. How are you going to live like this? How are you going to do the five things Peter says? Have unity of mind, sympathy, familial love, tender hearts, humble minds. Where does this come from? It comes straight from Jesus. He did it for you. And, and I think it's really important for us to remember this every once in a while. Because sometimes we have a hard time serving others. Sometimes we have a hard time humbling ourselves. But if we think of where Jesus came... To humble himself, right? In terms of the distance he took. What is the distance that God asks us to take? To humble ourselves in relation to other people. Not even close to what it is between God and what he did on our behalf. So coming back to Peter then. Peter's saying, here are the things we have to do among the assembly together. You you know... One of the things that we have to understand about biblical literature is they didn't have things like italics, underline, bold. There wasn't any way to do that. So one of the artistic ways that they tried to highlight things for us is by putting it in a pattern. And this is actually one of those patterns. It's five things. And I'm going to try and organize the pattern for you here. You'll notice the first says, have unity of mind. The second step is have sympathy. The center point is have familial love. Coming back, have a tender heart, have humble mind. Let me mention a few things about this. Uh, It's it's called a chiasm. Uh, You don't need to remember that. It's just a structured form to try and highlight something for us. And it highlights a couple of things about this list. One of those is this. The first and the last on the list correspond to one another. The first and the last correspond. If you ask the question, how will we as an assembly be unified? The answer is by being humble. 
Did you know that people who are not humble don't get along with other people? Is that true? Have you found that to be the case? Do you know why? Because they know all the answers and nobody else can actually inform them about anything that they need to hear about. They can never unify with somebody because they need to be over somebody. Because nobody else is as smart or as, as sharp as them. Nobody else has ideas like they have ideas. And so everybody just needs to listen to them. This ought not to be the case among God's people. Let me simply say, even if you're the most gifted person in this church, even if you're the sharpest, most intellectually astute person in this church, you need the brothers and sisters of this assembly. Be humble. And if there's going to be unity in a church, there's going to be humility. And let's just flip it around then. If there's no unity, guess what? There's no before that. There's no humility. And in any relationship you find yourself in, if you say there's disunity, there's disharmony all over the place, then let me just tell you, somewhere in that relationship, there's pride. Now, it could dominantly be on your side. It could dominantly be on the other side. But if you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I'm I'm quite aware it's completely on the other side, then perhaps you need to rethink (laughs) whether you're as humble as you think you are. Because I've found every time there has been a disagreement in any relationship I've ever had that I'm at least a part of it. Have you not found this as well? So if we're going to be unified, and listen, here here you guys continue to be as you're looking for the head pastor. And I know you, you, you long for that head pastor to come in. And, and what we need at this stage is unity to continue to be together and unified. I I have celebrated since I've been here the spirit of unity that I've sensed among, among this congregation. It has been a joy to be here for that very reason. And when you don't have that, you know it, don't you? There's a tension among the people. Keep that. And the moments you start sensing that disunity, that, that disharmony, begin looking first in your own heart. Because what does Jesus say? When you notice a log in your brother's eye, pick up the mirror. Pick up the mirror. And yeah, maybe it's just a speck in your eye, but get rid of the speck before you go after the log, right? So one of the things Peter says is have unity of mind, and you're going to do this by having humility. The second two then go together as well. Have sympathy. Have a tender heart. Now, I would suggest to you that these characteristics come more naturally to some people than other people. Even, I think, humility comes more naturally to some people than other people. That gives nobody the right to not be humble, right? But but some are just more naturally inclined that way, and others need to work on it a little bit more. When it comes to this second set of characteristics, have sympathy and a tender heart, some people have a bleeding heart, and you know them. Uh, they, they hear news of some event that's taken place among somebody else among the congregation, and they, their tears just start welling up. They, they experience this sympathy, this feeling together with someone else. But there are others who hear something, and, and there's just no feeling there at all. And again, this is temper. This is somewhat, sometimes, the way that we're made. But you'll notice that this is a command, isn't it? 
And do you know, sympathy, even if it doesn't come naturally, can be formed within your heart. And here's my suggestion to you as an assembly. Because I, just this morning, I, I'm teaching my ABF. And the, the heartache that's happening within my adult Bible fellowship, that's what we mean by ABF. It's a, basically a Sunday school uh, for about 40-year-olds, somewhere around there. And uh, we just heard the news of, of one of the young boys in the, one, of the, one of the families, their son, is developing a neurological disorder of his legs. And he's, he's struggling to walk now. And he's 11 years old, I think. And it's, it's quite a challenging situation. Another, another uh, family, uh, the, the girl plays sports and has had too many concussions, and now she can't really quite remember, and it's been going on for a couple of years now. And, and these are incredibly weighty and heavy things. So when among this congregation things like that happen, what's the right response? Let me suggest this. That instead of the first thing we do, just text off a quick email or a quick text or just say, hey, I'm praying for you. Sit down and ask yourself this question. If I had just received news that my child has a neurological disorder that may cripple him. How would I begin to think about that? How would that influence our lives? What would that do in terms of even my own thoughts about God, in terms of my relationships at church? Do you see, this is what sympathy means. It's, it's the feeling what someone else feels. And it's so easy, isn't it, to hear something bad, about, bad that's happening in somebody else's life and say, oh man, that, that's, that's hard. I'll pray for you. But it's another thing to sit down and to contemplate and to think deeply in your heart about how you might think about so that you can pray and help, right? You'll notice this, this middle command. We'll get to it in just a moment, but it's have family love, which means that we're a family. And it means when my brother or my sister goes through deep pain, then I ought to go through deep pain too. So if we are going to have sympathy, if we're going to have tender hearts, some that comes extremely naturally, some it doesn't. But that doesn't exclude us from it. So develop that. And I'm sure there are uh, prayer lists here that uh, the Lord has provided for the church to be able to think about and pray for other people. Meditate. Think about how the experiences of your brothers and sisters, what they're going through. This is a central part of what Peter is saying is what the church ought to be. Well, so we've got these, these lists. And then we've got this center point, right? And if you ask the question, well, how in the world can I have family love for the people of my assembly? The way that Peter put this chiasm together is that he's saying, here's how to do it. Are you humble in mind? Do you have unity? Are you seeking for unity? That's how you love. Do you have sympathy? Do you have a tender heart? That's how you love one another. And he's driving it to this central thing. What is the central command of Jesus in regard to the church? It's love your brothers and sisters. 
And love, by the way, doesn't mean have a great feeling towards them. That may be the case. Hopefully it is the case. Love means self-sacrifice. It means to put myself second and put someone else first. And this is what the church ought to be doing. And again, you know, Peter has drawn attention to it before. But what Jesus says is, this is how the world will know who are my disciples. If you love one another. The church ought to be really odd in this way. That we love one another with a love that the world just doesn't understand. It's an otherworldly love because it literally comes from another world. It comes from God himself. All right, so the first set of commands is our relationships to those outside or inside the assembly. But then Peter turns to our relationships outside the assembly. And he, he gives us really two, uh, two things not to do and one thing to do. So let's just walk through these. First, don't return evil for evil. Second, don't return slander for slander. Let me simply ask, is that easy? What comes naturally when somebody does something evil against you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Retaliation is just natural. And, and if you don't believe it, just watch kids sometimes. Even my girls, it's happened before. You know, not in the last couple of years. But uh, <laughs> somebody did something, and then something else happens. And you say, now, what exactly happened? Why did you do that? Well, because she did this. And it's almost an excuse, isn't it? Well, they did that, so I did this. And that should be good. But you know, God will never accept that excuse. He's not going to accept it because he's already told us. Don't, my people, don't return evil for evil. And again, we're going to drive this all the way back to Jesus. The reason we don't do it is because Jesus didn't do it. And oh, are we not glad that Jesus didn't do it? Imagine the evil that we have done in regard to him or towards him. And yet, what did he do for us? What did he do in regard to us? He gave his very, his only begotten son that any of us who believe should not perish but have everlasting life. So we want others not to do evil for evil if we do evil. And so this is how we ought to respond. Don't return slander for slander. Again, this goes back to Jesus when he was being accused, when he was being spoken evil against. He did not speak evil against those who spoke evil of him. But instead, here is what he did do. And here's what Peter says we have to do in regard to Unbelievers, those who, who will uh, be opposite us. He says, repay evil with blessing. Repay evil with blessing. Now, I think to some extent, even our world says, boy, that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. And it sounds great until all of a sudden you're in the situation. It sounds great until we put specifics to the examples and we begin to say, well, well, wait a second, not there. I mean, think about Peter's audience. They're being persecuted simply because they name the name of Christ. That's it. They've not done any evil. They've called themselves Christians and they are being persecuted for it. And Peter says, all right, you're being persecuted. People are treating you wrongly. Bless them. 
bless them and just overwhelm them with blessing. It, again, is so unnatural. It is so outside the realm of our normal responses that it can only be divine. And that's part of the point, isn't it? Remember, what Peter's doing in this whole section is saying, how will you show the glory of the light of God to unbelievers? Respond in a way that they would never expect. Respond in love when they respond with hate. Now, he makes a statement here, because you'll notice he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And then he says this, for to this... You were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, there are two ways of understanding this phrase because he says, To this you were called. Now, is the this pointing forward or is it pointing backwards? Uh, just let me give you an example. If, if uh, we're talking about uh, a sports game and somebody's about to go make the final shot of the game. And you say, you were made for this, that you would make this shot. So when I say this, I'm pointing forward that you would make this shot. Or I could say, to make this shot, you were made for this. And in that case, I'm pointing back to the making of the shot, right? So in this case, Peter says, for to this you were called, and, and the question is, is, does it point forward or backwards? If it points forward, he's saying this, you were called to inherit a blessing. So blessed, because he says, for to this you were called. And this is that you may obtain a blessing. So in other words, because you are going to be in, incredibly blessed, eternally blessed by God, then bless other people. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's pointing it back. And that's what the second one here. He says, you were called to suffer and bless. That is, you were called in this life to actually suffer and to give a blessing to those who cause your suffering. And when you do this, you will be blessed. Now, again, this is a, a pattern that we don't really like all that much, do we? And yet, is it not one that Scripture most clearly indicates is the case? Remember what Paul says. You were called not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for him. You were called to suffer for Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, we were, I told you, as I told you many times before, I tell you again, we were destined for this. And this, this is suffering for the name of Christ. And what Peter is saying here then is, you were called to endure suffering and give a blessing to other people. And when you do it, you will be blessed. And so when we look at this situation and we say, all right, so why should I bless those who curse me? I think the answer is, is twofold. One, because in such a way you mimic the glory of the Father and show what he's like to unbelievers. Second, because in doing so, you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And at the end of the day, it'll be worth it. It will be worth it. So when we're talking to believers or we're within the congregation, he says, we have to love one another with a family love. When he says to those outside, we must respond with grace and kindness even when they respond with evil. 
And then he concludes with this uh, statement here uh, in verse, verses uh, 10 and following. Forever desires to love life and to see good days. Here's what he ought to do. Keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Now, it's interesting to me, the end of verse 9, he says that you may obtain a blessing. The question is this, is it just merely an eternal blessing? Or is it a blessing in this life that you are going to receive? Now, some would suggest it's merely an eternal, because back in 1 Peter 1.6, he says, you have this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But of course... He then talks about living the good life. He says, whoever desires to love life and to see good days. My argument is this, that I think Peter is not simply saying that if you respond to evil with good, then you will have rewards in eternity. I think he is saying that. But I think he's also saying this, that there are rewards today for living like that. There are rewards today. And you say, well, well, why do you say that? Notice again this passage. He's quoting from the Old Testament, by the way, from Psalm 34. And he's asking this question. Who among you desires to love life and to see good days? Is that not the search of humanity? The 50-some million views of this video suggests to me that this is what humanity is looking for. They're looking for the good life. How do I have good days? How do I love life? And the psalmist says, here's the secret to loving life. Here's the secret to having good days. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. And you know all of these commands here in verses 10 and 11 correlate with the commands he's just made for us within our relationships among the assembly and to those outside the assembly. And what Peter is essentially saying is, do you want to follow what the psalm says about what the good life looks like? Here's how you're going to do it. In the assembly, love, love your brothers and sisters. Outside the assembly, respond to hate with love and kindness and grace. Turn away from evil and do good. And then he supplies for us a promise. Here's why you should do this, and here's why this is the good life. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. And then he offers a warning, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 12 is one of my favorite promises in all of scripture. And whenever I think about this passage, I think about God the Father looking at my life. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. When I think of the world at large, I recognize that we are not even ants in this universe 
right? We are so tiny, so insignificant. And even just as we think about it, there are billions of people on this planet. But here's the promise of the word. That if you're righteous, if you're seeking to live according to what God says, he's watching your life. His eyes are on your life. But not only that, not only is he watching your life, he's got his hand to his ear and he's desiring to hear your prayers. Is that not incredible? Is that not a truth that we need to grasp onto? And here Peter says, why should you obey these commands? Why should you love your brothers? Why should you respond with grace to those who are outside? It's because when you do these things, the Father's eyes upon you and his ears open to your prayer. And this is the good life. Coming back to this Harvard professor, his own conclusion to the study, and this merely confirms, I think, what Scripture teaches. He says at the very end of that video, he says, Here, here's the essence of what we've learned. The good life is one built with good relationships. Lots of people in this, in this world have sought after riches. They weren't happy. They sought after positions of power and fame. They weren't happy. Do you know who the ones who, were, who, who found fulfillment in joy in life were? They're the people who sought after relationships. And do you know what Scripture here teaches us in this passage? Don't make yourself first. Don't make your life about you. Do you want to have the good life? Then don't make your life about you. And it seems so foreign, so opposite. But if I spend my, my time and energy on myself, then all will be great. And God says, oh, what a mistake. What a mistake. Instead, three groups of people we ought to care about. How do we relate to those within the assembly? We give ourselves to them. We sacrifice for them. We love the brothers and sisters. What do we do with those outside? Even when they speak evil against us, even when they're hostile to us, we love them. We respond with grace and kindness, showing the glory of Christ, because then we'll have reward in heaven. And as we have right relationships with the men and women who surround us, we'll have right relationship with God. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? When 1 John says, how do you know you're a believer? And he says, if you love God. And then he says, how do you know you love God? And he says, do you love your brothers? Do you see it's all interconnected? Because if you know God, then he's transformed your heart. And you have a love for other people. You have a love for the brothers and sisters in the congregation, but you also have a love for that dying and lost neighbor. And to the degree that you have this love, you're reflecting the very love of God and he's born it in your heart so that we can have confidence that he is looking upon our lives and he is cupping his hand to his ear, listening to our prayers. Father, I'm so thankful today that we can have confidence that you hear us, that you love us with a love that is beyond imagination. And we ask now that we would love others with that same love. 
Oh, Father, we live in a world that promises to persecute us. Help us to respond with love. Father, we live in a, in a church where there are going to be difficulties, there are going to be disagreements, there's going to be challenges. But we thank you that you have given to us the example through Jesus of what it means to humble ourselves, that we might have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. Help us to do it. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. Thank you for the promise that you always hear us. In Jesus' name, amen.